All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here from New York City on the 29th day of August, 2017. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you once again, I am the, uh, the uh, editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And it is indeed a good time to be owning junior gold stocks. They're doing very well, and we have some very exciting stories uh, to tell you. One we'll be telling you about a little later in the second segment of today's show. But if you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Or you can call our office here in New York during normal work hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also, like to encourage you to consider subscribing to my friend Chen Lin's letter. Uh, go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Chen has done exceptionally well over the number of years um, with his investments, and he uh, his focus is also on some of the gold stocks. But in particular, he's done very well in the biotech and energy sectors over the last number of years, when the gold shares haven't done as well. I do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are New Range Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals, Fireweed Zinc, and Osprey Gold Development. I've titled today's show, Is India's Self-Destruction America's Future Also? William Engdell, Brian Groves, and Michael Oliver return as guests today. As the world faces a major showdown between the East and the West, one of the biggest questions on my mind is, which side is India on? Recent policies in India, such as those aimed at discouraging gold ownership or the destruction of paper money, destruction of currency, I should say, in your hands, appear to be more akin to policies espoused by America's ruling elite in Washington and the halls of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale that are indeed meant to destroy the middle class and anyone who doesn't subscribe to their godless values. At about half past the hour, I'm looking forward to talking to William Angdahl about India's recent inclination to side with Anglo with the Anglo-American empire that is certainly built on the sinking sand of a fake dollar currency that is being enforced with eternal wars and devastation rather than the more constructive economic policies, I would argue, of the One Belt, One Road initiative from China, Russia, and surrounding nations. So this is obviously a geopolitical issue of major concern, uh, as well as a question of our own personal liberties in America. If, in fact, we will be deprived of holding gold and other forms of money, but instead subjected to the whims 
of increasingly totalitarian government and digital currencies that they can control. Well, Michael Oliver has been telling us that gold is in a powerful new bull market. He held firm on that notion, even as that prediction was looking a bit shaky a few weeks ago. But now that gold is breaking out, it is high time to pay attention to gold stocks, and in particular, gold stocks that not only rise with the price of gold, but those companies that are in the process of making major discoveries. And one such company is Genesis Metals, a company that has prospects for outlining a multi-million ounce gold deposit in Quebec. It is headed by a very competent management team, and in just a few minutes after our first commercial break, I'm happy to tell you I'll be talking to Brian Groves. He's the CEO of Genesis Metals, and he'll be with us to explain why his company indeed has a chance to outline something special uh, in the way of ounces in the ground in Quebec. And Why should we care about that? Well, it's actually quite simple. Genesis Metals currently has a market cap of only around $10 million in U.S. money. A discovery of even a million mineable ounces could send this stock, in my view, several fold over its current market cap. In an attempt to begin documenting ounces in the ground, Genesis Metals started a drilling program in July, which I'm sure Brian will be telling us about in a few minutes. So I would argue that you owe it to yourself to listen to what Brian has to say. But right now, you owe it to yourself to listen to what Michael Oliver has to say. We are so fortunate to have him once again, and I would like to tell you before we say hello to Michael, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Thanks for joining me again today, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you. Uh, Is that offer still on? You've been very kind in the past. You've offered to our listeners that they could get a a sample of your work if they go to OliverMSA.com. There's a a box uh, on the site to request samples, yes, and be happy to do that. Sure. Okay. Great. All right. I want to ask you, you know, several, well, I guess it's going on a couple of years now. We've been talking on a pretty regular basis, but you started warning about some major changes in markets going back. There were about four major, what you called plate tectonics, that were about to shift, major market shifts that were coming about. Um, You talked about gold and commodities on the one hand, precious metals and commodities, the dollar on the other, U.S. treasuries um, and stocks as well. Now, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but just this past weekend or very recently, you you have really declared a bear market in the S&P 500, and that was really the last thing to turn. All the other major plates have basically gone in the direction that you've suggested, that is gold and commodities into a bull market, the currencies into a bull market, the dollar into a bear, the treasuries into a bear. The only thing that's held back kind of has been stocks. The S&P 500 has been stubbornly refusing to go down. NASDAQ, I think you called a bear on that one. But can you update us on your four-plate tectonics, Michael, and tell us where they're at and maybe give us some idea of where you think some of these major markets may be heading in the not-too-distant future. Okay, let's begin with gold because it was really first, and it often is. Uh, Gold bottomed in uh, late 15, 2015, but it upturned. In February 2016, as it came through 1140 to 1160 zone, it's well below us now, that level, uh, that broke all of our long-term momentum oscillators out to the upside. Now, it didn't mean much to price. You looked at a price chart and saw that level, mm-hmm. you'd say, well, so what? But momentum broke out. We ran up a couple hundred dollars almost immediately. Then had a big pullback into December last year, which shook everybody loose. 
held right on momentum support, turned around, and exploded back up over 1,300 now. Now, something very interesting happened today, and that was that we traded to 1,324. I think it was the high trade for the August contract, which expires today. Uh, that put annual momentum more than 11% over the current three-year average. Uh, mm-hmm. We measure in relation to an average, not, not against a price level. That's our focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sure. what momentum's about. Last year's oscillator high, though price was at 1377, the oscillator high was 10% over. So mm-hmm. today, actually, on momentum, we took out last year's high. Mm. Now, what does that mean? What it means is, and during major trend chan- transitions, whether it's topping or bottoming, in this case, we bottomed. Uh, it's usually an arduous process. It's rarely, you know, a top and you're gone. Uh, most tops take a while to build. Most bottoms take a while to build. And this is true with most markets. Uh, and w- momentum will tend to lead the new trend direction in a way that it gets to a breakout levels before price ever, ever acknowledges such things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you look at a price chart, you always lag to what momentum's already told you. So in this case, I think today's action is saying, hey, that high of 1377 we made last year, forget it, it's gone. It's coming out. Interesting. Okay. So, now, that, that's a very good sign. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have a pullback in gold or whatever, but it's a good, very solid sign. Now, in the middle of a trend, let's say a year from now, the gold's 15, 16, 1700. And frankly, I think the low 1700s right now is the next major objective. Um, the two things will be in sync. Price and momentum will be buddies. They'll be moving together. It's in those transition periods of tops and bottoms that you'll find momentum leading the way and price begrudgingly trying to resist it. Uh, but anyway, right now there's another feature on, on gold that price chart guys will notice. And if you look at just the last several years of price action, you can contrive a massive head and shoulder bottom mm-hmm. using orthodox price chart methods. And it comes through somewhere above 1350. So I think that's the point at which most price chart guys will give up the, the, any bearish view and say, oh, gosh, it really has bottomed. Mm-hmm. Momentum said it bottomed at 1140. And price <laughs> will say if it breaks through 1350, well, if you do the swing measurement, it says swing objective of that head and shoulder bottom on a price chart, and I've got some momentum reasons to agree with this, is over 1700. Uh-huh. So that's just the first leg. I don't mean ultimate objective. So it's looking very interesting there. Uh, T-bond market. Broke down October of last year. So, again, about six months after gold, seven months after uh, the bonds changed trend. Been in, they've been engaged in a counter-trend rally since, but it's a, it's a feeble, redundant ca- counter-trend rally, just wasting time, I think. Uh, and I suspect bonds don't have much more to go on the upside before they roll over again, meaning rates go higher. Commodities. Commodities are lagged, are, are, are what I would call in the emergent phase of a bull market. The, a positive signal occurred last October on the Bloomberg Commodity Index. And it really it shot up a bit and pulled back. Right now it's slightly actually below the original price of that breakout uh, in terms of price level. But I think that the commodities are turning, and I think they are lagged to gold, which was the case back in the 70s, by the way, in that big mm-hmm. bull market. They were lagged to gold by about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, what else? Foreign exchange, dollar. Mm-hmm. Dollar broke down, in our view, when it broke through $99 index. Uh, it's now at 92 Today's action, <laughs> just while gold took out last year's oscillator high, price of the dollar index took out the last 30 months of price lows today. Mm-hmm. Now, last year's price low plus 30 months worth. So price mm-hmm. is much lagged at the 92 level. 
where it broke down on momentum, which was 99 back in May on our momentum work. So the mm-hmm. dollar, in our view, is a bear market. Now even the price of it is exhibiting that, that tone and direction. Mm-hmm. So the one we're left with is the S&P. And it, it, in the U.S. market in general, uh, is not really in sync with the global markets. If you look at Europe, Europe is at the basically the lows of the year. Uh, the DAX index, uh, the Euro stocks 50. Uh, if we were back down to the low of 2017, we'd be substantially below where we are right now. Uh, but I think enough damage has been done in enough key indexes and sectors of the U.S. market to indicate that the, the bottom is starting to come out, starting to break. Now, I don't expect some dramatic 1987-type event. I suspect that the stock market uh, is topped, but the process of decline could be a layered thing, and you might not really feel it in, a, in your guts until next year. You might be well off your high by the end of this year, but uh, uh, they'll still be debating which, what its trend is, uh-huh. is my view. Uh, even if you have topped and have dropped 0.5, 7, 8% off the high, they'll still be bulls saying that's a buying opportunity, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, I, I think that there's a lot of the evidence on the negative side of long-term momentum says, no, it's, you've broken enough stuff now to be certainly out of stocks. Uh, mm. All right. Uh, Initially probing short, you know. All right. Well, that's fine with me. I I hate to see uh, one of these gut-wrenching crashes, Michael. We don't need that. We really don't. And I'm very much assured by your your confidence in gold and and some of the other markets that we are definitely invested in. Thank you so much for being with us again, Michael. And again, folks, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Go there, and uh, Michael is kind enough to provide you with uh, with some uh, trial uh, information there. You can uh, test his product out. I have to say that it is the best that I've seen for my purposes in terms of knowing, are we in a bear market? Are we in a bull market? Because as an investor, that's what I care most about. And uh, thanks again, Michael, for being with us. Thank you, Jay. Always, always great to have you. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Brian Groves, the president, uh, the CEO of Genesis Metals, will be with us, and they're uh, involved in a discovery in Quebec, a gold discovery, that I think you'll find very, very interesting. You owe it to yourself to stick around, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Brian Groves. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, 
New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again Brian Groves, the CEO of Genesis Metals. Uh, Brian first introduced Genesis Metals to this audience on June 6th, so uh, today we want to find out uh, what has transpired since then, what the company has maybe learned since then about their Chevrolet project in Quebec. Brian is, uh, as I mentioned, the CEO, uh, and he's a director of Genesis Metals. He's over 30 years of experience in Australia and Canadian mining exploration. He's been involved with a host of major companies, household name companies like Amex Minerals, Noranda, Placer Dome. And since 2003, he's been involved more with the juniors. And uh, that's um, we're glad that he's uh, using his talents for a company that I have uh, some shares in. So, um recommended the stock Genesis Metals to my subscribers and I'm very happy to have companies uh, like Genesis that uh, uh, sponsor this show I like to have companies that I like that sponsor this show Genesis Metals trades in Toronto under the symbol GIS in the US you can buy it as I have under the symbol GGISF 70.3 million shares is trading about 14 cents in US money today gives it a minuscule market cap of just a shade under 10 million US dollars thanks for joining me again Brian thanks very much Jay for having me again always good to have you here and uh, to hear about your project because it is one in fact I must say that as I was reviewing what you told us back on June 6 today in preparation for this show I said, by golly, I've got to pick up a few more shares, and that's exactly what I did this morning. I actually oh, doubled excellent. my share position. So it's a, but I mean, you have a good start there towards, I, I think, towards, uh, towards possibly proving up uh, over a million ounces, maybe several million ounces of mineable gold uh, there in in Quebec. Uh, you had a forty-three one hundred one resource of around three hundred thousand ounces, I believe, a historic resource that I believe was. Uh, was calculated under 43101 guidelines, but since you are now the owner and not the one that did the work, uh, you have to do a bit more there to bring that up uh, to the 43101 guidelines. And you have some fairly extensive drilling uh, that was done in the north by Falcon Bridge in the past uh, that also seems to be very promising. On July 11th, you announced that you would be starting a 10,000-meter drill program, of which I believe you're going to do 5,000 meters first, then perhaps... Uh, study that the results of that, and then do the following five thousand meters. Do I have that right? And and where That's where are correct. you at in that program now? 
Uh, well, actually, we uh, have just uh, finished the uh, first phase of drilling and trenching. Uh-huh. So that uh, that entails around about uh, 4,800 meters, close enough to the 5,000 meters that we had anticipated for drilling. Uh-huh. Uh, and we also completed about 24 trenches. Um, I, I'm sure most of your listeners realize that a trench is, is really just uh, it's a, it's a fancy name for a, a big ditch to expose the bedrock um, using a backhoe. Uh, so we've had a very, very big busy um, six to eight weeks since we announced the start of drilling. Uh, very, very uh, efficient drilling, uh, drilling contractors in Quebec, so we've had very good production. Uh, so in that 4,800 meters, we, we drilled 26 holes. And uh, the main focus at this stage was to do two things. One was to dedicate some holes to the main zone, which is the site of the compliant resource that you referred to of the 300,000 ounces. It's also the site, uh, the zone that had a, a historic uh, resource uh, compiled back in the 1990s by Manova, which was mm-hmm. uh, Falcon Bridge Copper, so a, a blue chip uh, base metal producing company. Uh, unfortunately, because it lies outside of 43101 in terms of its age, we cannot really use it much. So we've decided to go back and uh, drill holes into the main zone. So approximately half the holes uh, of that 26 uh, holes in total were dedicated to the main zone, and that was designed to twin uh, historic holes. In other words, try to drill a hole in very close proximity to existing historic holes, and um, as well as holes to try and evaluate areas for extension and to infill known areas of gold mineralization. Um, so the remaining uh, 12 holes were then designed to evaluate uh, IP, induced polarization, geophysical mm-hmm. anomalies that lie in close proximity to the main zone. So uh, we've, we've, as I said, we've had a very, very uh, busy, uh, busy summer. Um, part of the reason that we chose to do two phases with approximately about a four-week break between the phases of drilling is really just to allow assays to catch up. We know that uh, most assay labs in North America are swamped at the present time with samples. Turnaround times are typically you know, four weeks or more, so we decided not to embark on the second phase until we had given ourselves an opportunity to collect all the relevant assay data from the first phase. Uh, and, and in that first phase, as I mentioned, we're testing some concepts and ideas as well as mm-hmm. trying to get a better handle on the main zone. Right, so you can look at the drill core and maybe learn something from that and study that and, and sort of that along with your IP uh, anomalies yeah. and so forth allow you to set up your second uh, phase two, I guess you call it, of the 5,000 meter program. That's correct. Yeah, the, uh, the the main focus of drilling was all in the area of the main zone, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, the second phase will be dedicating quite a few meters of drilling to the uh, the area that you referenced, uh, had, which had been drilled by Falconbridge in the 1980s, uh, even older than the main zone. So the uh, Falconbridge um, copper did uh, quite a few holes in an area called the East Zone, which is in the northeast corner of the property. Uh, I was on actually fortunate enough to be into. We we had actually had to blaze through bush there, but there's a large area of exposed bedrock uh, in outcrop almost uh, where Falconbridge, you could see where Falconbridge had taken various samples and set up drill holes. Uh, but to me, it's still a very, very intriguing target. So uh, quite a few meters, as I said, of the second phase of drilling, another 5,000 meters is planned st- uh, starting in the latter part of September, will be uh, devoted towards testing that area as well. Mm-hmm. So, and, and your trenching program, I guess, also is not necessarily meant to look for mineralization, but to find structures so that you know how to set up your drill programs? 
Uh, typically, I, I guess our program this summer, Jay, is a little unusual. You typically do not run trenching and drilling concurrently, but we chose to just to try and, and basically evaluate as many targets as possible. Uh, we knew we had to drill holes into the main zone just for confirmation purposes and, and to allow us to start using some of the historic data uh, from a compliant point of view when we're ready to update the resource estimate. But in most cases, trenching is very, very cost-effective at testing some of the IP anomalies just to see if we can explain the source of those anomalies. And mm-hmm. uh, in one particular case, one of the trenches on an IP anomaly appears to have uncovered a wide alteration zone which appears not to have been recognized before by any any uh, workers on the property. So we are eager to see what assays may come back from that. Uh, so it, it just shows that on a project that has had a fairly lengthy history of exploration going back about 40 years, that you can still make, um, you know, interesting areas, identify interesting areas that people haven't worked on before. So we're very fortunate. Um, just just to apprise everybody, the this is that's the end of our trenching program. We won't be doing any further trenches at this stage, and everything from here on in, as I mentioned, will be the uh, dedicated to drilling. And these are fairly shallow holes, I guess, so that you're looking at a 5,000-meter drill hole. A, a drill program can, can get you quite a bit of data, quite a bit of that's important exactly data into yeah, we, mineralized zones. That's true. Yeah, we're anticipating another, um, as I said, another 5,000 meters should be around somewhere between 26 to 28 holes additionally. And uh, one one thing we have also learned is uh, in the main zone, uh, we we know that uh, there is tight folding in some of the uh, in some of the mineralization areas, and that seems to concentrate the higher grades. But what we've recognized by looking at uh, the longitudinal sections, in other words, uh, the orientation of the deformation zone is roughly northeast southwest. West. So if we do a slice, uh, a vertical slice through the drill data in that along uh, that parallel direction, mm-hmm. uh, we start to see a, a rake, um, uh, like a, a plunge or a rake to the south, which is quite mm-hmm. intriguing. And we don't think that uh, perhaps previous workers recognized there may have been a second potential control on mineralization. And, and again, this was part of our intent with this phase of drilling was to try and understand what the controls on mineralization were rather than try and drill for high grade. Let's see you know, if we can understand what controls the mineralization and look for areas sure. for expansion. So in support of a potentially, a, hopefully, a, a larger resource estimate one, once we get to that stage. Sure. If you can understand the controls, uh, the, the, the the features that control the mineralization, then you can, I, I suppose, drill much more efficiently. So that's, that's um, correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really I found very promising is the idea that you had a lot of drill data that wasn't factored yet into that 43-101. And I think that historic resource of 540,000 ounces or something like that, do you expect um, that you'll be able to pull a lot of those ounces into a resource? And, and if so, how soon? Um, I think... Uh, we we anticipate that we'll be able to use most of the old historic data. Uh, again, mm-hmm. twinning twinning of holes is a very yeah. common step sure. in the process of certification to keep you know the regulators and the exchange um, you know sort of ha- happy, shall I say, in terms of the quality of the data that we're using. Sure. Um, but I, I think what we're seeing, Jay, is that if this if this rate component is actually validated by further drilling in the second phase, 
it could very well be that uh, we, we have a lot more drilling to do to build up that resource. I, I think the best guidance I could provide your listeners would be that we won't be charging into a uh, resource estimate and probably until mid-next year at this stage. Um, mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. could come a little earlier, but uh, again, with any measure of success, uh, for instance, even on the east side, by going back and, and reviewing all the data there and doing some uh, some smart drilling, if I can use that term, uh, in the second phase of our current pr- program, if we are successful there, then we potentially have another zone that f- upon which we'll probably <laughs> be looking at uh, the opportunity to calculate a resource at some stage. So I, I think... Um, uh, we, we could, you know, I, I think that's probably the best, uh, the best guidance I can provide in terms of time sure. of, a, of an update. Yeah. Sure. If I hear what you're saying, uh, that historic resource of 540,000 ounces, if you charged forward and try to just, you know, twin enough holes to get that into compliance, you may be actually shortchanging yourself or your investors in terms of what you might really have there, depending on if you see some structural controls, I suppose that, that's that's exactly it. Yeah, if we if yeah. we see if we see a predictive uh, crit- criterion or, or control, for instance, on the mineralization that offers potential to expand the resource um, along areas where you know no mineralization has been encountered previously, then I, I think it's in the best interest of shareholders to to let us fully evaluate the size potential you know size of the deposit before we uh, get to the resource estimation phase. Yep. Uh, how much work was done up there with uh, Falcon Bridge by Falcon Bridge in the east? I mean, is that were there a lot of holes put down there? And if so, might there be a resource coming from that area some sometime in that's, the near future? That's, uh, it's very it's it's highly uh, it's it's very possible, Jay. I, I, they um, the government assessment files indicate that they completed somewhere in the range of about fifty fifty plus holes. Hmm. These were mostly shallow holes because, as I mentioned, uh, the east sun is exposed in outcrop over fairly large areas, so roughly um, in imperial units, roughly about 150 by 500 or 600 feet, so quite a significant area of exposure. Um, and there are conspicuous quartz veins, and you can see where Falcon Bridge took channel samples with a diamond mm-hmm. saw, which, you know, just a narrow uh, sample, shallow sample from the bedrock surface. Um, but it was very selective. They only sampled the quartz veins, and we know that sometimes at that stage, um, you know, open pitable bulk mineable type deposits were not even imagined in the, yeah. you know, in the Archean in Canada. Uh, everything was underground. So uh, what we have uh, also completed are four channel cuts, so about, about 150 feet uh, long, right across that large area of outcrop and uh, crossing the uh, strike direction, just to see what uh, the grade distribution looks like across the entire outcrop area. Uh, we don't know at this stage, but what we do know is in the drilling that Falcon Bridge completed, they were very, very selective in the samples they took from drill core and assayed. Um, today, most gold exploration would uh, be looking at sampling most, if not all, the core because mm-hmm. it's hard to predict where core is uh, 100% of the time, uh, gold is 100% of the time. So uh, we can see very selective sampling on the part of Falcon Bridge back in, in the early mm-hmm. 80s. And uh, as part of this current work program as well, I forgot to mention that we've gone back and, and resampled three holes from the historic holes from the main zone and five historic holes from the east zone uh, mm. to basically sample the sections of core that were previously not sampled by the likes of Falcon Bridge and Minova to see if we can establish any great distribution in those um, previously unsampled areas. If we mm-hmm. can, then it changes, again, that would change the, uh, the, the scope and the dimension of the potential for um, you know, a resource uh, quite immeasurably. So we're still, uh, we're still looking for the assays. Um, 
Uh, we have completed the program, as I said, for this first phase. We anticipate assays to be arriving uh, with first uh, news releases coming out about the results probably by mid-September. Mm. Uh, we're hoping, fingers crossed, and uh, that uh, the, the turnaround time stays within that four to maybe five-week time, time range, in which case um, your listeners can reasonably expect our first, uh, first update on results, uh, as I said, in mid-September. All right, and and then the next drill program uh, would start uh, thereafter. Can you drill through the winter there? Yes, we can. We're very fortunate. Uh, the main zone itself is um, on the land. We can drill. Uh, if, if anything, um, uh, eastern Canada uh, has had a very, very wet summer, uh, so it's been quite uh, swampy and boggy. Some of the roads have been very difficult to uh, traverse. We had to use uh, four-wheel ATVs to get to some of the uh, trench locations just uh, last week. But um, uh, when that freezes, it makes for very easy access around the property. Uh, we may also, we're still um, considering the south zone, which is a second zone uh, lying to the south of the main zone. Uh, it, uh, it was previously drilled by Manova, um, but when the 2010-43-101 uh, report was issued, uh, the, um, the authors of, those, of that report uh, concluded that if uh, another 20 holes were drilled into the south zone, uh, it might be possible then to have the sufficient drill density upon which to calculate a resource estimate. Oh, that uh, south zone, though, a part of that lays on, lies under a shallow lake, so that would definitely be a winter program. So, uh, again, we'll have to figure that into the uh, schedule for early, uh, early winter next All year. All right. All right, Brian. Well, we're just we're just basically out of time. I, I guess okay. your drivers and people should be watching for those assays and and ongoing information that comes out of that. I suppose. Correct. Yeah, and with the turnaround, with the number of samples we've submitted, we can probably see assays announcements coming through for the next uh, six weeks to two months, Jay. And okay. That, uh, so. Yeah. All right. Very good. And and you have cash enough cash to get you through. You'll probably yes. need to raise some money next year, though. I think we will, yes. Certainly, uh, we plan to finish this program with somewhere in the range of $1.2 to $1.5 million still in the Treasury. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, so that it's still a reasonable place. But, yes, we will need to be looking at the market again next year for um, you know, next year's programs. All right. A very exciting story to be, uh, to be sure. Thank you very much for being with us, Brian. We'll look forward to That's keeping it. up with you in the future. Thanks very much, Jay, for having me today. Okay. You bet. Okay, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because William Angdahl will be with us to talk about what is India up to? Which side of the uh, east-west equation is India resting on? Is it with the east or the west? And what it's all about their policies of getting rid of currency and getting rid of and trying to discourage their citizens from owning gold. What's that all about? We'll talk to William Angdahl about that after the break. Don't go away. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again, F. William Engdahl. Uh, and I would like to tell you, uh, suggest to all of my listeners that they go to williamangdahl.com. That's Engdahl spelled E-N-G-D-A-H-L, williamangdahl.com. Avail yourself there to William's very insightful essays. Um, he writes very frequently. He's, he's written a number of books that are extremely insightful and truthful, I believe, and very, very helpful. If you want to know what is really true, or at least have a different perspective from the constant 24-7 propaganda that we are being fed day in and day out here in America, and I suspect in the Western world in general. Thank you for joining me again, William. Glad to be with you, Jay. Always good to have you with me. You know, one question on my mind uh, with regard to geopolitics and the struggle between Asia and, I would say, the East and the West uh, has been this whole issue of which side is India on? And so I was very much intrigued by an article that you recently titled, Has Noriande Modi Switched Sides? And as an overview to your article, let me just uh, read what you said uh, at the top of that article. You said, and I quote, It's very discomforting to see the nation of India, one of the great potential leading countries of the world, systematically self-destruct, provoking a new war with China over remote chunks of land in the high Himalayas where the borders of China and Tibet autonomous region converge with India and the kingdom of Bhutan is only the latest example. The question posed is who or what grand design is behind India's foreign and domestic policies under Prime Minister Narendra Modi? Has has Modi switched sides? If so, to whom? So, you know, you noted in that article, William, that uh, I think last year relations between India and China and even Pakistan and India seem to be improving. Can, Can you talk a little bit about what seemed to be moving in a peaceful direction uh, before some changes took place? What seemed to be the case was, uh, it was formalized this summer actually, but last year the vote was taken by the members of the Eurasian Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a group of nations including Russia and China and several of the key countries in Central Asia including Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, And they voted to accept, after several years of observer status, both Pakistan and India into the SCO format as full full members. Now, shortly after that admission, Modi began uh, saber-rattling against China. And 
it's, it's like a, a bully trying to pick fights, but India itself is in no military shape to take on China. So you have to ask the question, who's giving China the backbone to, to uh, make these provocations? And the answer doesn't go much beyond Washington and the U.S. intelligence, CIA, and, and such characters. Uh, very clearly, you want to uh, cut China down to size in terms of its in growing influence in the world as a stabilizing economic power, uh, among other things, among the most alarming for, for the Wall Street uh, gods of money, as I call them in my book, yeah, yeah. Wall Street bankers that think they own the world because they print all the money for the world, uh, or a lot of it. And they cannot tolerate a peaceful emergence of a counterweight to their sole superpower status. And that's very uh, one-sided of them, I think. Uh, but nonetheless, that's, that's their flawed reasoning about uh, world power. So I think they're very much behind this Modi uh, operation. As was, you remember last November, I think it was, that Modi announced that as of the end of the year or a very short time frame, all Indian uh, paper bills of a valuation that translates into about eight US dollars and 15 US dollars, and these constituted 85% of the paper currency circulating in the Indian economy, they were going to be no longer valid, and unless Indians turned them into the, a bank and get a bank account with digital credit in return, they were out of luck. And that would mean an 85% shrinkage of, of the uh, money in circulation in the Indian economy. Now, Indian, uh, India's economy is not the same as Germany's economy, where I live right now. Uh, India's economy is primarily a, an informal economy of very hand-to-mouth business transactions by uh, small shopkeepers and, and others to simply feed themselves. And a tiny percent of the Indian population is upper-middle-class, university-educated uh, IT programmers or what will you. And for the most part, India is still a third world nation in terms of the most of the population. So what Modi did by doing this, and it was done on the uh, instructions of the Reserve Bank of India, the central bank, was catastrophic for the Indian economy. And later parliament reports uh, demonstrated that. So one has to ask, uh, is what is Modi doing? Is he, is he a sadist against his own people? And then uh, provoking a potential war with China mm -hmm. rather than a peaceful cooperation. And the argument of India is that China has invested some $60 billion in something called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, part of the so-called New Silk Road or the One Bridge, One Road mm -hmm. massive infrastructure project of China that is to my mind, the most important physical construction economic project in the history of the last 500 years on this earth. Mm -hmm. 
and has the potential to transform the world economy, not just the Chinese economy. This is much bigger than China. And if we in the West were to embrace that in an open and honest way, this would be the way out of continuous wars of destruction and so forth to processes of building up, building infrastructure, something America urgently needs, especially now after this absolute catastrophe in, in uh, Texas with the uh, catastrophic rains and, and hurricane of Harvey in the last days, and it's by no means over. Mm -hmm. So infrastructure is, is the byword of, of the future of the, not only the world economy, but the U.S. economy. So India, by going into a military provocation in this remote, remote place of the Himalayas uh, near uh, Bhutan, the kingdom of Bhutan, where China, India, and Bhutan all meet their borders, mm -hmm. uh, leads me to ask whose side is Modi playing on? I have uh, a good Indian dialogue uh, partner, let's say. Uh, she's a professor of law at a leading Indian university. Her husband was one of the most senior members of the Indian uh, military uh, until about, I think it was 10 or 12 years ago, when he was too outspoken against one of the corrupt uh, prime ministers and as a result lost his job. And she says that the tragedy is that Modi has never been anything but the marionette of the Indian oligarchs who are beholden to the U.S. or the Anglo-American oligarchs around groups like the Bilderberg or the Trilateral Commission or so forth, even though India is not, to my knowledge, a member of the Trilateral yet. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and they destroy... India, much as the British destroyed India during the colonial period, the East yeah. India Company, the British government. But uh, Modi is doing that to his own people. So this is a very dangerous development, I think, in terms of world peace. Yeah. Well, William, you know, trying to understand it from, um, you know, from our policymakers' point of view or our ruling elite's point of view, the dollar... Which I, which I think is an illegitimate currency. It's a currency that's been forced on the world when Bretton Woods was pulled apart, in, especially in 1971. That was the end of any sort of uh, notion of, honest, of an honest dollar because it was no longer based on, yeah. uh, on real value. It was based on the might of the United States yeah. and the military-industrial complex. Just thinking through what you're saying now, if the rest of the world, let's say, because India is such a large population combined with China and then Russia's raw materials, as you've talked about in the past, being such an important part of the the uh, one, the New Silk Road, that um, that there must be some people in our military industrial complex that are saying, holy cow, this cannot go on because if this monstrous economy of Asia and all the way up into to Europe is successful and they and they have their own currencies and indeed those countries are not looking to use dollars anymore they're trying to get rid of their dollars they're using their own currencies to trade amongst themselves they're using gold too from what I understand and all those Very countries gold. all much. those countries are really building their gold reserves 
India as much as any. The people have a love for gold. They 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 put their savings in gold. That I mean, you know, that's what they trust. Yeah. So, and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I've wondered, you know, I mean, the, the policy from Modi has been to try to discourage uh, people from owning gold. He's put taxes yeah. and various things to try to keep them from owning gold. It seems to me that if the CIA is involved in trying to change things there, it makes a lot of sense, not on the part of the American people who have no clue that this is going on, but it yeah. makes a lot of sense from the point of view of a very small ruling elite that want to dominate the global economy and indeed probably put into effect a one world government with Washington or some elitist somewhere uh, in charge of it, right? Isn't that what's going on here? Uh, divide and conquer, divide, divide and conquer, divide and yeah. conquer, get, get rid of India. Don't allow that monstrous country of one over a billion people to be a part of this. Let's pull them over to our side. At least let's destroy them so they can't be a part of it. Well, that's, I, I, I think, uh, it's not even quite that yet. It's let's use India as a battering ram to beat up China and to destroy the Silk Road project by creating a war, provoking oh, China yeah. and creating a war. Now, I've been to China something like, uh, I've lost count, but 16 times in the last eight years. The mm-hmm. latest was in June. And I made a tour of China in terms of researching uh, a new book project on the Silk Road and what, what that really means in, in terms of real ports, in terms of real high-speed rail connections throughout Eurasia and throughout uh, into Europe and also into Southeast Asia. And the Chinese are, if you look at their diplomatic record over the last 40, 50 years, they are not going around the world to provoke fights. The situation, the conflicts with India in 1962 and others in the past and uh, the situation in Tibet was being provoked by the CIA. That's well documented in 1959 with the Dalai Lama. The CIA smuggled the Dalai Lama out of Tibet and put him into a safe house set up in India across the border. And, of course, that created a, a strong friction point between the Chinese government and, and India. But uh, China is not inclined to be hot-headed. They sometimes, the British intelligence has profiled the Indian ideology and psychology and the Chinese psychology uh, very, very deeply look at what the opium wars were with mm-hmm. the British uh, after 1840, lasting up until Shanghai Shek, by the way, in 1949, when uh, the Chinese revolution forced Shanghai uh, Shek into exile in Taiwan. So the, the British and less so the Americans, because they're not as deeply steeped in study of history and culture, but there are enough experts that are hired from Britain American universities and uh, government agencies uh, as consultants. The, uh, they know the, the flashpoints, and they're trying to provoke these with China. And I, I'll give you an interesting example of how the sophistication of the Chinese uh, leadership has changed over even the last eight years. My first trip to China was in April of 2008 two months or three months before the 
Summer Olympics, the Beijing Olympics. And I'm sorry, are we still on? Yes, we're here. Yeah, I'm, okay, we're- I got a message here. Uh, and at that point, there were riots in Tibet being provoked by the U.S. Uh, soft power NGOs like National Endowment for Democracy, Freedom mm-hmm. House, etc., to embarrass the Chinese before this grand Olympics that they were so proud of that they were presenting themselves to the world as an emerging modern nation, mm-hmm. which they certainly are. Uh, and their response, their immediate response was the articles, editorials in the China Daily with terminology like uh, the Dalai Lama, the capitalist running dog lackey of imperialism, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. It's really yeah. nonsense. But yeah. this is old ideology from the 1950s, of course. Yeah. And now, in 2014, I think it was, there was a Hong Kong umbrella revolution where students occupied the main business center of Hong Kong. Sure. And... Uh, was causing all sorts of uh, problems and protesting Beijing's uh, ruling of uh, Hong Kong, which was turned over to China in 1999 under certain conditions by the British. And I wrote several articles uh, in public domain that uh, detailed how the National Endowment for Democracy and CIA-controlled NGOs of Washington, so-called human rights NGOs, we're running this to embarrass China on, on the Hong Kong question. And about two weeks later, I'm not saying there's a direct cause and effect, but about two weeks later, China Daily had an editorial, and the lead title was, Why is Washington always making color revolutions? Yes. And text led with the name of the vice president of the National Endowment for Democracy responsible for the China portfolio and their meetings with key leadership in the Mm -hmm. Hong Kong color revolution. Sure. So this reflects a very, very rapid sophistication of the Chinese leadership. Mm -hmm. They, uh, you know, they're learning very quickly. They've been isolated for decades. Yeah. Now they're, in the larger world and learning what the games are of Washington and Britain and so forth. So I don't think they're going to preemptively get suckered in, just as they haven't yet in the East or South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, certainly they, they, they would like to have access to the South China Sea and believe they should have some dominion over it. And why should the United States, I guess? And you can understand that thinking, although I don't think most Americans can. We've been so programmed to think that we should rule the world for the good of everybody yeah. else. Yeah, well, it's not good. We've spent uh, more than $1 trillion, $1 trillion. Think of what $1 trillion could do in the damaged parts of, of the Texas uh, Gulf of Mexico coast after this catastrophe. Yeah. Well, our, uh, yeah, countless other needs, yeah. In Afghanistan since uh, Bush 2001, September, yeah. October. Yeah. $1 trillion on a war in Afghanistan for what? For what? Well, I think uh, President Eisenhower... Good for I, America. I, you know, we I don't... Believe- yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, no, I believe President Eisenhower warned us about that as he was leaving office. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the military-industrial complex, it has a life of its own. And honestly, William, it seems to me that nobody is really in charge. This is some sort of a, of a major 
monster that is just moving forward without it's certainly the president of the United States whoever he or she is is not in charge I think you would agree with that I would certainly agree with that yeah I mean just look at Kennedy and uh, you know maybe the last person to really challenge the military industrial complex uh, some people believe uh, and we know what message was sent to to future presidents after that. William, with one, with one minute left, uh, closing thoughts on this issue about India? Yes. Closing thoughts about India is India is at a crossroads right now. The Modi policies are destroying any potential of peaceful development of the whole Indian subcontinent. Either there's a possibility that Modi makes a road to Damascus shift, which I don't foresee, or there's a rejection of the Modi policies by by layers of the Indian elites or the Indian leading circles, and uh, a change of leadership. All right. In either case, if they continue down this road, it's going to mean the destruction of India. Well, I, I, we do have to leave it go at that. William, thank you so much for being with us. It's very important to uh, folks to read what William says about these uh, these issues and many others. Uh, very important information that you don't get from our mainstream media. Thank you so much, William, for being with us, and we'll look forward to doing it again in the near future. Thank folks, you very that- much. That is all the time we have today. Next week, John Rubino will be with me, uh, hopefully Michael Oliver as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 